Hi, I'm Jess and I'm the oldest. Oi, I'm the oldest. I'm Shtee, I'm the dad and this is actually my podcast. And I'm Tommy, I'm the youngest. Welcome to the podcast. The, the heart of hearts, we're all very creative. I've had a very interesting life. You've travelled all over the world. I remember being... Oh, interesting. This is not how I remember this story. story, story, story. Pints are not a good measure for filling Jacobs as fuel. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome friends, it is episode 14 and we are very excited to be back here, particularly because we have a very special guest. Tommy, do you want to do the intros? I'm going to do the intros. We have with us the one, the only, Rosemary Clark, who is our aunt. (laughs) And my elder sister, one of of two older sisters, yoikes. Why don't you say hello, Rosie? Why? Hello, Rosie. Oh no, that's... (laughs) (laughs) You know, I usually start off these little pod larks uh, with a bit about one member of my family. I thought, well, here's Rosie. We could talk about her. But I'm not going to say how brilliant she is because she's with us, but she is brilliant. <laughs> but I thought we could just chat a bit about uh, when we were growing up, Rosie, because your memories are different to mine, I think. And I'd like you to tell me anything that you can remember about a Sunday uh, when we were growing up, when we were very little, because they were sort of very different days for our family. Don't know if you can remember anything about that. Well, they were based around church, so we used to have a mad scramble in the morning to try and make sure that we got to church. I think it started at 11, didn't it? Um, yeah. So we used to have That's to... pretty reasonable. Well, but when you've got four children, you're trying to get out of the house yeah. and um, think about lunch when we come back. Um, it was just always a bit crazy. Stress, stress, stress. <laughs> it was, and of course we wore our best. And um, we had to walk across the recreation ground um, on our way down a nice little steep hill down to the church. And I can remember one Sunday morning, um, Dad turned round and he noticed that he'd trailed grass clippings into the church um, because the grass on the recreation ground had just been cut. So he went to get a dustpan and brush to clean up after himself. And the person who was on the door was highly amused because apparently almost every Sunday during the summer months he came in trailing grass <laughs> and had never noticed before. <laughs> That's amazing. That really sounds a lot like what we have when we go, um, when we all spend Christmas together and there's the inevitable rush to get to church uh, with trying to get everyone through the showers and sort of woken up and mm. out the door. But every Sunday. I mean, when we're together at Christmas, I mean, how many of us could there be 15 trying to get yeah. through a shower and a bath. So, yeah, quite tricky. But the, the irony of it is, is that Sunday, according to the Christian sort of tradition, is supposed to be a day of rest, but it was absolutely anything <laughs> but that on, on the sort of the morning mm. of the morning, uh, which is right, rather nice living in France because uh, Sundays are completely different here because all the shops are shut, which is a really nice thing. Um, it has a nice feel about it. But the other thing I remember in the afternoons on Sundays, we weren't, our activities were restricted, really. I can remember we were allowed to do some things, but not others. Um, cards, pack of cards, absolutely not, if I'm right. Yes, I mean, I can remember being allowed to knit, but not to sew, because sewing was using a machine. That seemed to make a difference. Oh. Huh. That's interesting. But I also remember, um, before that, when I was really young, I suppose I would have been about four, there was Sunday school at three o'clock in the afternoon, and so I went, and I, I can remember one day, uh, it must have been the winter, and, and Dad was dressing me in this nice little red coat with red velvet lapels and pocket covers. And um, as he was buttoning up the coat for me, he could hear a chink of coins. 
And he said, what's this? And he opened my pockets and he found, I don't know, about six or seven pennies. And what had happened was, every Sunday I'd been given two pennies to put in the offering. And I'd only put in one. Mm. <gasps> Quite mm. what I thought I was going to do with the stash of others, I've no <laughs> idea. But Scandalous. Hey. <laughs> this has never been told in public, this story. This is a worldwide exclusive, people. <laughs> Amazing. Rosemary embezzles the church. (laughs) (laughs) But I think then, um, a bit later on, um, when we were too old for Sunday school, or maybe they changed the system, we used to have something for youngsters in the morning that was sort of tied in with the same time as the service. And then we had Sunday afternoons free. And so then we would do interesting things like go for walks. Um, But I can also remember one time when Dad got some balsa wood and got us trying to carve things out of balsa wood. I can't remember quite what it was, but I suspect it might have been linked to the Bible. I don't know if we were making an ark or animals put in the ark or how long it lasted. I certainly don't have any um, mementos of that time, but I can remember the excitement of thinking we were carving wood, which was an interesting Mm. thing to do on a Sunday, and which was presumably allowed because what we were carving was related to something to do with Christianity. I, I remember that carving, actually. Just now, you've, now you say it, it's uh, triggered a memory. I was just um, just going back to your story before about embezzling the uh, pennies from church. It's reminded me that we've, I think we've talked before about your, your money laundering scheme as well, which was where, we, where you had to wash the pennies from the fountain. Oh, yes. Um, to make sure they were all clean so then we could donate them or... Um, which is just yeah. funny that two stories have come up with you about money laundering, <laughs> embezzlement <laughs> and money laundering, which is I mean, not expected. I mean, that was an extraordinary thing. I've forgotten of your involvement in that. Mm. Um, but it was when I was working in Milton Keynes for a charity and um, we'd been um, offered the opportunity of having all of the money that was collected in the wishing well at Christmas time. And um, Milton Keynes has got a very large uh, covered shopping centre and it always has a lovely display which includes a wishing well and um, so we said of course yes we'd love it Um, but then they the way that it was organised was that all the money had to go to other things not actually us and we weren't allowed to use any of the money for any of our time and so we I think we put in like a couple of weeks of time for free in order to have the money to send to others But when it came to clear the wishing well, what was interesting was that um, they drained the money, the sorry, they drained the uh, water out of the thing, and then we'd got all of those coins, and we had to put them into buckets to carry them away, and you know those large, I think they would have been five litre paint pot type tins buckets, Mm -hmm. Uh, we could only Mm. half fill them because they were so heavy with all of these Mm, coins. We had seventy of them and. And we were giving them to different people to take away and count. But, you know, they'd been sitting in the water for six weeks and they were mucky and horrible and wet. So different people had different ideas of how to clean them and dry them. And then, of course, we had to count them and bag them and then bank them. And the banks weren't very um, keen on this because I think it was about 17, nearly £17,000 wow. that was collected. And you can imagine what that was mm. like in all the change. <laughs> but I feel like we should clarify that money laundering was because of 
the pro- literally laundering the money, not the yes. not the uh, clean. Not the, not the yes. Act. Yes, just to be clear, it was a jo- it was a funny joke about cleaning money. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, police who listen. I can tell you, one for someone who's involved, you don't really want to very often get involved with cleaning money that's been in water for two weeks, especially if other things mm. were thrown into it. Or, yeah. Ooh, yeah. So, Shnevi, so, what stories have you got for us today? Well, last time, uh, I think you remember we were in the Sudan in that part of my life. And I'm just going to carry on a little bit with that because uh, part of it actually involves Rosie. Um, and she reminded me, uh, she's staying with us here in France at the moment, and she reminded me of, of one thing which reminded me of another thing, both to do with um, mm-hmm. not money laundering, but money shortages, actually. And the first one of these was to do with uh, the the refugee programmes that we were running there required uh, funding, of course. And the banking system was not sort of brilliant for making transfers. So uh, we used to take quite large amounts of cash from the UK to Sudan in our luggage, um, in our hand luggage. And I think the highest amount I ever took was 50,000 sterling, um, which I remember was handed which was handed over to me in a toilet at Heathrow and I thought this is this really seems like a <laughs> this really seems like a drug deal of, of mean... some kind of a, um, mission impossible or something but the the Sudanese authorities quite rightly were very very concerned about people bringing in money and taking it out and they they controlled it very tightly and it used to be controlled very tightly in in the United Kingdom in years gone by and I can remember when I was young if you if you went over even to France for example you had to go and get the foreign currency from the bank and it was stamped in your passport. You couldn't just, you know, it was all control. And this was true in, in Khartoum. And uh, so when, when you arrived, they had to count what you were bringing in and they count what you were taking out. Um, now, this is slightly... Oh, that's right, because you declare the amount you've got. And I declared that I got £50,000 on me, um, which they wanted to then clarify and so we unpacked it all in on this sort of arrivals hall in the airport and there were all these bundles of of um 20 pound notes i think they were and i think each bundle was a thousand so it would be 50 20 pound notes in a bundle and they're all lined down they were counting and they actually counted each bundle they wanted to be sure exactly and it was one short the whole of this fifty thousand, which i'd taken in sealed packets from um hsbc in lemmings and spa and well, clearly hadn't been touched since, was one £20 note short. Whoa. And, and the, the bundle that was short had uh, two people's signature on it saying it had been checked and validated. And so when I got back, I went and looked into it, and it turned out, would you believe this, that they count it, so-called, um, by weighing it. They, they just weigh mm. the bundles, mm. and they've got a super fine... Um, tolerances on their balancing machines to find out exactly what the the amount of money is and it obviously tallied exactly however in that bundle one of the notes had been torn and somebody had repaired it <gasps> and taped, and taped back had repaired no. it with tape and wow but the, the the amount of tape they used just coincidentally was exactly the same as an as an is extra it, note that is that interesting is very interesting you you would think they would have come across that before and have things in place mm. to stop that from happening but I know. we used to have those machines um when i worked in a bar and it was just really satisfying to mm. sort of be able to count money you know especially big amounts of money by just kind of stacking it but, on one of those machines and 
And like, it weighed it, do you mean? Yeah. When you're... yeah, yeah, and it weighed ah, it. Okay. So when you're counting money, it's always at the end of a long shift as well, so anything you can yeah, do to make exactly. it happen is, <laughs> is very welcome. But, but it caused me a problem or two, because I had, I had to explain the difference between my declaration and the actual money I had in my possession. I mean, in the end, we worked it out that it was because it was repaired, you know, that it had been weighed, but um, I think it took me another 20 minutes to get through arrivals and stuff. Mm. And that, that was triggered, that memory was triggered by Rosie reminding me that when we got it there, obviously we banked it into this, the bank account in Sudan and it was, it was um, uh, converted into Sudanese pounds, as they were called. And, um, and then that went up to the, to the project area and all the staff were paid in cash because uh, they didn't have bank accounts and so on. And so uh, it turned out that we were at the sort of end of the year that we were a lot of money short and lots of people were sort of under suspicion really because um, uh, the, the accounts just didn't balance in terms of what was supposed to be left in the safe and what had been paid out and what had been put in. And so we did a sort of forensic examination and eventually we discovered that um, a similar thing, but not I think probably more intentionally, every, pretty much every bundle that we received from the bank in local currency in Khartoum was one note short, pretty much every single one. So over the year, all the money that we'd taken out of the bank was always a little bit less than it should have been, and that Whoa. accumulated into a loss. That's, but it took us ever so long time to find that. Um, and, of course, you don't know where along the line. And I couldn't put my hand on my heart even today and say that it was definitely the bank because, of course, somebody picks it up from the bank. That wasn't me. Mm. It gets transferred. It, can't, it always signed off at each time. But, but I mean, mm. in the end, it was relatively minor. Um, but uh, interesting, nevertheless. And the other thing about Sudan um, that involves Rosie was at one point, I think in the early 90s, there was torrential rain. I think I might, might have mentioned this before. Um, and a place where it almost never rains in Khartoum had huge amounts of rain in a very short period and there were a lot of floods and so we being the organization I was working for um, organized a relief flight uh, of um, immediate sort of emergency kits for people who didn't have shelter you know clean water that sort of thing water containers and flew it out to Khartoum and um, at the time Rosie was a sort of budding reporter and so I thought oh let's see if we can persuade her to go on the flight and uh, sort of monitor its progress. So over to you. I, 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 I've never really heard any details about that. I remember you did a recording, <laughs> but what's your memory of that, if you've got one? Uh, well, how could I not um, accept such an offer to go on a plane? <laughs> but uh, it was really odd because it was a cargo plane. It had a, a Land Rover in it and all these supplies. And I remember um, I had to go to pick it up in um, Amsterdam, um, and when I got there, the plane was delayed because the incoming pilots had got to have some rest. So I was stuck in Amsterdam airport and not knowing whether I could go and explore or not. And it kept going on and on. I had nothing to eat. I got really no money because I was just going out on the flight, coming straight back again. Um, and uh, in the end, I think they put me up, somebody put me up in a hotel and and then eventually we got on this flight and when we got to Khartoum you could see as we were coming in all the water everywhere and um, I was hoping that I could make some really interesting recordings and so the person who'd come to receive the, the equipment and stuff came to see me and it was so hot and the noise of all the aircraft was so great 
that the only place that we could record was inside a land and different Land Rover with the windows all screwed up tight mm. to minimise the amount of sound. But the quality of the sound was not good. Um, I'm not sure if any of it could ever be used in the end. And then, because I'd got no papers, you know, I wasn't, I couldn't go anywhere other than st- stick with the plane ready for it to come back. So everything had to be offloaded. And I, I took what I'd got in terms of recordings back with me. But the other thing I took back was some uh, part from the Land Rover engine that needed to be reconditioned. So it was big and heavy and greasy and, and packed in um, plastic. Um, so, of course, there was no problem as I got into the airport in Amsterdam. Um, but then I had to go out again and have my luggage checked. So uh, <laughs> I was sitting there waiting for the announcement of my flight and there were no announcements. And then suddenly I realised that there were no announcements They'd stopped announcing individual <gasps> flights, so I checked the board and it was last boarding. Oh, no. So I dashed down to the, you know, go through, and they must have put my bag through, you know, a scanner, and they saw this part in it and they wanted to know whatever it was because <laughs> mm. um, it, it looked just like a big, thick bit of metal that looked highly suspicious. And I can remember, you know, getting onto the flight with, um, at the very last minute and being grateful. But the other thing that was sad about it was that the Sunday programme had lined up a studio for me to report, you know, back uh, in Amsterdam. Um, but it became clear that that was never going to happen because we'd been so delayed and it was going to be a live link into the Sunday programme. So, you know, my hopes of being a star reporter were rather dashed at that time. It sounds like one of those potentially very exciting trips that turned out to be a jolly hard slog in the end of it. Yeah. But also very good to have that experience. And actually another time, I don't know if you remember, Stevie, but you sent me to Iraq with 35,000 US dollars. And, um, I deny it all. I don't know anything about it. <laughs> so this too was for relief work because in northern Iraq, Iraq at that time there was no banking system. So we had to have money in uh, cash. And I can remember feeling so responsible of having this around my waist because, as you said, with the sterling, um, $35,000 doesn't actually take up much space. Um, So I I had to take my money belt off as I went through the scanner and I was going out of the um, that area of the airport and suddenly realised oh, I'd left this no, behind. No. <laughs> so you can imagine my mad panic as I went back and my great relief when I saw it was still there. And then I had to overnight on my own in Turkey, in, uh, um, in Istanbul, and I really wanted to go out for a meal, but I didn't dare go out on my own in a big capital city I'm not knowing quite how safe I would be with all this mm. money around my waist. And I didn't feel safe to leave it in the room either. And one of my friends had told me that if um, if you were in the room and you didn't want to lose your £35,000 uh, that they'd written you I was going to take, they told me that if I put a chair underneath um, the door handle and put my walking boots underneath the legs of the chair so that the grip of them wouldn't move the chair, then I'd be fine. <laughs> so I hold myself up encouraging. In, in the hotel room from whenever I got in until um, the time I had to leave in the morning and was deeply relieved to get the money into northern Iraq. I can imagine. Only to find, of course, that we face the same sort of problem that Stephen mentioned. Um, there's no bank, so you've got this money. 
um, that you have to get it changed. So you're dependent on local money changers who are always out to perhaps um, get a good deal. Mm. And then what went out as just a few notes, apparently, came back as three sacks of money. <laughs> and then you had to check them all. And they didn't use the biggest 50 dinar note because they were easily forged. And, and so nobody would accept them. So we had all these small notes that had to be checked every mm. single bundle. And there was no safe big enough to hold them, so the safe held the dollars until they were exchanged, and we just had to keep sacks of money under the stairs. Not exactly secure, but that was the way we made it work. So did you take it out as dollars because it was, like, a a smaller amount in kind of weight? I don't think you could um, get Iraqi dollars easily. Um, Oh, okay. But, I mean, yes. So you needed the uh, hard currency in order to be able to work, really. Mm. Hmm. Oh, that sounds like such a kind of complicated way of yeah getting getting mm. money it's, to to relieve. I mean, it's a good example of you know a lot of people say that charities waste money kind of thing, and they sort of think oh well this charity spent twenty percent on admin and it's ridiculous or something. Whatever. Probably they don't have any idea the kind of the complications that are involved in actually spending money and operating programs in some of these places. There's always mm. sort of costs involved. Um, that you, you don't foresee and, and you can't get around really. So the other thing, the other sort of very memorable incident that happened in Sudan was when um, I went with Matt, actually, one time. Uh, we'd, I think we got a couple of weeks there. Uh, and in fact, while we were there, two things happened. Um, Matt's had a terrible stomach upset um, and mm. was really unwell. And the temperature rate got up to 50 degrees centigrade. Um, now this week it's been 40 in France and we couldn't, which is exceptional and we couldn't really sort of move but I, it reminded me of that 50 degree temperature you can't really do anything um, but when we, we used to travel there at that time on, on Balkan Bulgarian Airlines because um, that was the, the cheapest route uh, through to um, uh, to Sudan we, we transited in Sofia on the way out and on the way back and uh, uh, when we checked in for the flight in in Khartoum to come back to London, uh, obviously we were waiting for the plane to come in from Sofia, land, get, uh, un- unload its uh, its passengers, and then we would get on. And sure enough, the plane came in, an old Tupolev plane, for those who are interested. Um, very, very noisy now, uh, if they still exist. And, um, and the passengers got off, and it included this group of uh, refugees who were from Eritrea, and had resettled to Bulgaria. So they were living in Bulgaria, having escaped the um, northern part of their country, and, and were living and had got settled status and um, had jobs and families and so on. And they were coming back to Sudan to visit some of their family members who were living in refugee camps, which is where we'd been working. So this group of about 35 people, I suppose, uh, got off the aeroplane, and um, when they got to uh, the immigration control, they said your uh, your visas are, are forged, your paperwork is forged. Now, whether they were or whether they weren't, yeah. I don't know, I'll never know to this day, um, but the net result was they weren't allowed to come into the Sudan and the authorities said you have to get back on the plane and they refused. So a standoff ensued with the airline saying we're not taking those passengers because they look, you know, they're angry, they're, they're not in a good frame of mind, we don't want to fly them back to a place they don't want to go. Um, and the Sudanese authorities saying, no, they can't come in. And so whilst all this was being discussed, Mutz and I were sitting in the departures lounge, 
departures lounge, which in those days, I think I've said before, I, I describe it more like a bus stop, really, which is not, <laughs> it's, it's not to diss the Sudanese International Airport because it's, it's, it's since been rebuilt. But it, it, you know, it, it, was, it was what it was. It was very small. There wasn't really any refreshments, um, very kind of uncomfortable seating. But there we were. And this thing carried on and carried on and carried on and nobody could resolve the problem. And eventually it went to the foreign minister of Bulgaria and the ambassador of... uh, Sorry, the foreign minister of Sudan and the ambassador for Bulgaria in Khartoum. So the very highest levels of government were discussing how to resolve this problem. And meanwhile, we just sat there. And uh, it took 27 hours to resolve. (laughs) So we were sitting at this bus stop, a.k.a airport for for 27 hours yikes and in the middle of that time a british airways flight came in and um in i don't know if this is still the case but if you bought a ticket on one airline uh, it was depending on the price you paid it was either fully flexible and it was a huge amount of money and could be transferred to any other airline at will or usually you paid a limited price and it was restricted to that airline so of course we had paid the limited price but if in extreme circumstances um, uh, you you needed to, that ticket could be used on another airline, provided it was what they called endorsed. And it, all that meant was that somebody in the know wrote on it, um, uh, OK to transfer to British Airways. <laughs> Does that remind you of anything? <laughs> that is so funny, because uh, as, you, as you would have it, we are actually recording from three different countries today, which is, n- and none of them the country in which we were born. <laughs> Um, yep. which is uh, so we're France, Ireland and Scotland um, but I've just arrived in, in Ireland and uh, because I work under a professional name which is different to the name that's on my passport and I'm here for, for a job uh, as as is kind of you know it's probably semi-inevitable when the company that you work with know you under one name but it's not the name of your passport my ticket was booked under the name that isn't on my passport <laughs> and when I turned up to the airline and sort of was trying to show them all these documents to say that, you know, I do have these two names and, and they're both me and it's fine. Um, and because uh, in the end, because uh, I could show my DBS, uh, which has both of my names on, which I think was quite a good document mm. to sort of say, uh, it's official. What is a DBS, just for interest? Uh, it's the Disclosure Barring Service, which is what you get when you work. Okay. Um, I have it for workshops. It sort of basically says you don't have any criminal records. Okay, DBS, right. Kind of, cool. Um, but it's quite like an official looking document. Um, anyway, and I was showing it to the person at check-in and it sort of took a little while and I just sort of... And she and it seemed to be okay, so I wasn't worried that I wasn't going to get on the flight. But then what what she did was just scribble on my, on my boarding pass, okay to accept Clark, <laughs> which I just found so funny because... because Should have written that on in the first place. Then. Well, exactly. There was no sort of, here's my airline stamp that says yeah. this is my handwriting and thing. And I was like, I just, I could have definitely scribbled <laughs> myself. When I, when I saw that, when you sent the picture through, I thought next time I'm going to write on it, okay to upgrade to business and see what happens. <laughs> What happened to the, um, what was the story about the refugees in the airport? Were they able to stay in the Sudan or did they have to go home? Yeah, no, they're completely good, good question. While we were sitting in the airport and I said, look, we're desperate. We're absolutely at the end of our wits. We've been here for 23 hours. Um, you know, your plane's stuck. Foreigners are discussing it. Nobody's got an idea. Can you not just take pity on us and endorse this 
ticket. And, I mean, to my absolute amazement, he said he agreed. And he, he wrote, OK to accept Clark. No, he didn't. He wrote, he wrote uh, <laughs> OK to transfer and stamped it and signed it on the, on the ticket coupon. Uh, and I absolutely was euphoric. I, I had never felt... Cause I, I mean, I can't really describe how low we felt in the heat mm. and, you know, the, the, the hope and then it all being... So, anyway, I was absolutely euphoric. But um, I had to get to the British Airways representative who was the other side. He wasn't airside. He was sort of in the, where the passengers check in. And you're not allowed back. So I had to find a... a <laughs> which in that airport wasn't too difficult, actually. I had to find a way back out of the airport without going through all the checks and balances to, to, because I, I, wanted, I wanted to still be in the airport, if you see what I mean. But I did get out there through a small gap between two walls that shouldn't really have <laughs> been there. Classic. And, uh, and I got to the British Airways desk and I said, can you give us some boarding passes? Have you got space? Look, here's two tickets indoors. And he said... Uh-uh, I'm not going to accept those. I was going like, I said, but they're endorsed, he said, and stamped and signed. And he said, yes, he said, I know, he said, but I haven't got any confidence that we will be reimbursed for the extra costs if we take you as passengers. Oh. So, come on, talk about a roller coaster of emotions. Mm. It was like, we're all low. Oh, I can't believe it. And then uh, even lower than before. Oh. So we mm. took our, retook our seats, and I think it was another three or four hours before um, finally they agreed a solution. And the solution was... Um, because in the middle of all this, the, the refugees had said, we're going to cause a mid-air incident, and the captain said, right, I'm out of here, and gone back to his hotel. So uh, in the end, the refugees were persuaded by the Bulgarian ambassador that there was no future for them coming into the country under the current paperwork, and that they had to go back to Bulgaria. And so the captain was called from his hotel, and in he came, and we all boarded. But these guys were very, very unhappy and they were all, they were herded like cattle out to the back of the, the air, aircraft, treated very, very um, contemptuously by, by the airline, really. Uh, all, they were all pushed to the back and, and the rest of us were brought to the front and, and they served whatever treats they had. I mean, I think they did have some fizzy white wine or something. Um, but it was a, a, all a horrible experience. Um, and when we got to, to Sofia, which was where the refugees had come from in the first place, and we got off the plane, there were military police to receive them, all armed, and they were, they were as I say, herded like cattle. Um, I don't know what happened to them, um, but they were being accused of something like endangering an aircraft or something like that, which is actually a very serious offence, which they never had done, apart from mm-hmm. saying, we don't want to go back... And as they went, one of the chaps said to me, um, called over his shoulder, he said, can you contact Amnesty International and tell them what you've seen? Just explain what you've seen, um, which, which we did, but I don't know any more of the story. Um, but it was, a, it was, if I think about the highs and lows of life, it was one of those things where I had extremes in sort of one 24-hour period. Mm. Mm. And very thought-provoking, really, because we, you know, with our British passports have swanned in and out of countries, left, right and centre, mm. um, freedom to travel and so on so uh, so yeah talking of freedom to travel and passports have you told the story of your time when you visited um, Mozambique where you had a problem with locking your passport in an office safe well I could just tell that I mean it's a good one since you've raised it um, <laughs> or is that and... for a good story 
Yeah, well, no, this was a bit ridiculous because I, I, I was working to support projects in Mozambique at this time and I had a director there who, I was his boss, effectively, and a guy called Robin, great guy, um, but he and I were cut out of extremely different moulds. So, um, you know, I think I did a forestry degree, which I'm very proud <laughs> of. Well, he was a classics scholar, so he had done classics at, you know, at Oxford, I think, pretty sure. And um, which makes it all the more impressive that he had given up that to go and work as a, uh, an aid worker in, in Maputo running these programmes. But we were always kind of, it was an uncomfortable relationship. And if he was sitting with me here now, I wouldn't say any other words and he would agree with me totally. And uh, one of the things that was amusing is his monthly reports um, always came in with a heading in Latin on the top of them. Um, because he just liked to put a Latin heading on it, knowing I'd never studied Latin, so I always had to go to... That seems quite exclusionary. Pre-Google, I had to go and find somebody who spoke Latin and find out what it meant. Mm. But, uh, I mean, it was like a semi-joke, really. I don't think it was exclusionary okay. in that sense. But um, I'll tell you uh, an example of that is one month came in, and it was very short, and I went and found out what, <laughs> what it was, and the, the translation of the Latin and the heading of this report was, woe piles woe upon woe. <laughs> Wow, that is, which, that's quite bleak. Which I'm pretty sure is a, is a, is a quote from some, something or other, but I don't quite know what. From the Bible, I think. Oh, is it? Oh, always a cheerful book. Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway that's not the story. The story is that um, I went on a visit to, to Mozambique and uh, we were to visit the project, which is right up in the north in Nyasa province. And this particular area had been chosen because uh, I went into, previously on a previous visit, I'd been into the United Nations office and they had a big, Mozambique is long and thin, as you might know, it's about a thousand kilometres long and very thin, or long, longer than that, uh, with loads of fantastic golden beaches, by the way, in brackets. And um, <laughs> on the UN um, representative's wall was a big floor-to-ceiling map of Mozambique with lots of pins in it, pins all over Mozambique, apart from right up in the top. Um, in Nyasa, and uh, I said to him, why, why aren't you doing anything up there? And he said, oh, nobody can visit it easily, so nobody wants to fund programmes there, <laughs> which is sort of another example of the poor ever being more marginalised, really. Mm. Um, anyway, at everybody else's expense, I decided that's where we would have our projects, you see. So, yeah, um, yeah so, well, as I say, I didn't ever really work there. I just visited there, but anyway, um, Rosie did. Um, and uh, so I was visiting, and we had to go to this Nias province, and it involved an internal flight up to the north. So I decided to leave my passport in the safe because I just thought, I don't need it. We're just going up to uh, the north of the same country. I left it in the safe. Flew up to the um, Lichinga, capital of Nyasa, and um, set off in the Land Rover. And then it became, and Robin was driving, and I was in the back, and it became obvious to me from the conversation that we were heading towards Malawi, uh, which is alongside. And it turned out that the quickest and easiest route to the project from where the plane had landed um, was out into Malawi, up, in, up north and back into Mozambique, because the roads in Malawi were much easier, they were oh. much better. So in other words, eight border crossings, out of the, into Malawi, out of Malawi, into Mozambique, and then coming back, out of Mozambique, into Malawi, out of Malawi, into Mozambique. And I didn't have my passport. And I was thinking, this is not going to go well. And I was trying to pluck up courage. And bear in mind, I was the boss here. But I was still trying to pluck up courage, tell Robin that I hadn't got my passport. Eventually I did. 
Now I can picture him now, his head bouncing along in front of me, driving the vehicle after I said, uh, Robin, I think you should know I haven't got my passport. And he didn't say anything for what seemed like an eternity. <laughs> I don't know how long it was. He just, and then he said, Stephen, I think you know I don't like surprises, particularly, uh, un- <laughs> particularly unpleasant ones. <laughs> so so um, we, we, we had three options then. One was to abandon the trip. And I'd come all the way from London, so mm. that didn't seem like a good idea. The second was to hide me in the Land Rover somewhere, which, which you, could, you could probably have got away with, but if you didn't, the stakes were too high. You know, mm. I could be languishing in a jail today if, um, mm. if that wasn't the case. And so the third one was to blag it, try and blag, blag our way through. Um, For eight crossings. A.K.A. the Stephen <laughs> Clark technique. Now, I did, I did... Now, in fairness, I did have a photocopy of my passport. So there was... But it was, it was black and white, and it was, had been done on a... It wasn't a good copy, put it that way. And the, the photo could have been a dog, you know. I mean, it, didn't look, <laughs> it, was, it was impossible to see where it was. So, anyway, brand, brandishing this... This first, um, at this at the border crossing, it was very early in the morning. And because I was leaving Malawi, the officer on the gate didn't really think it was a problem to let me go. So he stamped it. And the next one was the most difficult, was going back in, going into Malawi. And they didn't really want to let me in. But I was sort of saying, well, look, you, your colleague across the phone, he, he's, he's let me out with this part. Anyway, sort of three Oscar performance... Um, hysteria, um, charm, humour, every tactic I could come up with. And eventually I got that second stamp. Um, and then leaving Malawi was all right because I didn't care where I went, who I was. So, but, and getting back into Mozambique was easier because I'd already got a Mozambique visa. And then all the reverse was true coming back. So in the end, I did eight border crossings effectively without a passport, which was... Uh, wow, that is bananas. You must know that sinking feeling in your stomach where you realise you've done something or you've forgotten something, or there's something that could be absolutely critically bad, but actually, in the end, it turns out right. Just like when I forgot my raincoat on the way to the Pyrenees with UHD, <laughs> an hour and a half down the road or something. <laughs> Terrible. Never felt more bad. <laughs> that <laughs> sounds like exactly the same level of Exactly stakes. the same level of, of well, terribleness. Pit, pit in the stomach, it probably was the same sort of level, actually. Mm. And I, I remember sitting there in the car, and, and I realised... and. I can picture Steve's head bobbing to side to side. No, I think I've forgotten my... And he didn't said... say anything for ages. And then he said, Thomas, you know I love surprises, especially ones Thank that... You. That are bad. <laughs> said, you're welcome. We drove home. What I was wondering was, um, when you were younger, you went to stay with Rosie a couple of times, I think, without, or at least once. I don't know if you've got any memories of that, or you have Rosie. Um, was it in, in Norfolk? No, it was um, when I was in Bow Brick Hill. I think you would have been probably about six and eight. And I don't know where your parents were off to, but um, you came to stay over at least one night with me, which felt amazing that that you were able to come and stay. Mm. But the, the clearest thing that I remember was thinking about what you might like to eat and um, choosing what I thought was really special. In fact, I'd never had it before which was like a Viennetta, but one which was mint. And I thought, how special would this be? Oh, and then when I yeah. brought it out, Jess, I don't, you probably won't remember, but I know you just still don't like mint. So this special treat for you was not a special treat at all. <laughs> oh. that's, that's really interesting to know. I mean, obviously, why would your taste change? But I don't remember yeah. when I'd 
never, but I've never liked mint chocolate. Never liked there we mint. go. Yeah. It's good to know it's it's been consistent. You know, it's I'm not, not like I'm not you, you love this mint chocolate when you were eight. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry for not liking the treat. <laughs> Rosie says, I don't like surprises. <laughs> Especially not mint chocolate ones. I don't really remember anything like specific, but more I remember being there in the in that house and I can picture your kitchen in the back. Um and Gosh. I think I can picture... Did you have quite a few stuffed toys or something in the bedroom where we stayed? Or I completely made that up, or am I thinking of somewhere else? Um, I um, seem to remember something about Mickey Mouse and buying him from you, Jess, for 50p <laughs> when you were trying to raise money for something. Um, I don't know if that was before Aww. or after you came to my house, but it might have been before, so he might have been there ready to welcome you. I'm not yeah. quite sure. That's, a, that's the, the vaguest part of what I think is a memory of being there, is stuffed toys on the mm. in the bedroom where where we stayed or where I stayed maybe. Rosemary isn't renowned for stuffed toy collection as well, well as I know. Yeah. yeah. I wonder what I was trying to raise money for. That's you know, it's funny when you sort of are reminded of something you just have absolutely no recollection of. Yeah. yeah. And the other the other thing I was remembering was we all we were, you were working in the Isle of Man with Rosie at one point, Tommy. And Jess you came over for a couple of days or something and I was and I can't remember why you came or what was it just for the fun of it or what that was all about. I think I, yeah, I think I just came for the fun of it because I hadn't been mm. to visit where Rosie lived on the Isle of Man. Mm. The thing I remember particularly about that was um, when you took me between you to the fish restaurant. <gasps> yes, I remember that. Oh, great. Yeah, that chef who was so helpful and nice because this was this must have been quite soon after you became vegan must have been mm, feels like a long time ago i guess so and yeah. it was definitely it was definitely i really remember when you first were vegan the the world wasn't collectively as kind of dietary conscious as it feels like it is now and it was not easy to go into a restaurant and sort of just be like what's the vegan option especially like a, a fish it restaurant. specialist fish restaurant yeah it was like it very was high quality fish stuff but then the chef came over and and I think we'd asked like do you have any vegan things and it ended with the chef coming over and <clears throat> saying we've got a, we've got a food a food, <laughs> food kitchen <laughs> <laughs> we've got a kitchen full of food so what do you want it's brilliant and, the su- and it, what, whatever it was that he made me was like so good as well it was like mm. not just yeah slapping something them. together it was like actually there was clearly a very good chef in that place so yeah was, yeah no, that, that line will stay with me forever. It's just such a classic sort of response and, and so so good. You know, I often say people are sort of very often split into two categories, those who want to help and those who don't want to help. And that was definitely mm. a guy who wanted to help. Sort of mm. thing, so. Good. Well, that's my stories for today, I think. I don't know if any, anyone else has got anything to chip in. What was, what was your amazing phrase? That photo looks like... The photo could be a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, like it, I couldn't stop picturing after you said that as it was a passport with a dog's same. face in it. <laughs> I was just. Yeah, great. Well, thanks very much, Stevie. There's that was more to Rosie this stories. time. Yeah. And thanks, yeah, thanks very much, special guest star Rosemary Clark. Yeah, you can have the Pod Clark's Medal of Honour, which goes to all of our guest stars. I think you are uh, only the best of our guests. Uh, the medal of honor goes to, only which so far is everybody. But you know, don't want to make it sound like it's an easy bar to but hit. But I think it's more that we up. we don't really let many special guests on this podcast, so it's an honor in itself. <laughs> very, very true. true. Yes, I, there is honor yeah, to be found there. I had no idea when I came out to France that I would have this honor, 
and I can go back wow. with my head held high <laughs> and my medal in my pocket. Well, thank you very much, Rosie. Thank you, and it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Bye. Bye. Bye.